Well, welcome to the trailer park, everybody. <laughs> or should I say trailer parkway? Is that, does that work? <laughs> I literally just thought about that right now. And I am like, my pride is like very strong. <laughs> I'm so excited. I'm so excited to be with you guys. If you're new here, my name is Adam Barngraf. I'm one of the associate pastors. I oversee a few different things here, but uh, predominantly what I'm working on right now is the young adults group that meets on Monday nights. Um, holla to all the young adults out here. Love seeing you, uh, love being a part of it, and love being a part of this church. And when I get the opportunity to preach, I obviously relish that opportunity because then I get to be with all of you, and that's a, that's a, a privilege. Uh, let's take it upon ourselves to do another privilege, and that's to come before the Lord in prayer. Father, we are so thankful that we have the opportunity to corporately lift up our voice and declare that you are so far above, you are so lifted up, you are so glorious. God, we have this awesome inheritance, which is just your very self. And we're so thankful that we get this opportunity as your people to declare your praises. And we ask now that you would do what this passage says that you will, and that's bring comfort to your people. And God, that's what we need as we wait and we are waiting for you, and we're waiting patiently, but along the way, I know that some of us are hurting, and some of us are struggling, and this promise of comfort from you is real. And I ask, God, that you would help us through the power of your spirit to see the truth of your word, and that, God, you would make it penetrate beneath the bone and beneath the marrow and into the very center of our being. God, we want to be a people who loves Jesus with our whole being, and we ask that you would help us to be able to do that right now and through your word. And we pray it in your name. Amen. So when I was 19 years old, um, I had blew out my shoulder playing football at Solano College. <laughs> yeah, that's right, Solano College. That's not, a, that's not a bad plan B, by the way, just so you know. Lots of people are always like, you went to Solano? Yeah, I went to Solano. That was great. I have zero student loan debt. That's right. Uh, anyways, that's not even, I didn't plan on saying this either. Hey, I better stick to the notes or we're in trouble. <laughs> 19 years old, I blew out my shoulder, had to go have surgery. They had to put some screws in to hold my muscle back to bone. I don't know if there's a surgeon, if that's something that really happens. I know I got some screws in here. The, 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 the main point of my story is that I was 19 years old and I was very afraid of needles back then. I didn't like them. Um, I have something here that's called veins that you can't find. And so whenever somebody has to like go give blood for me, I just tell them in advance, I'm so sorry to have to ruin your day. You're not going to be able to find my veins and I might pass out. I don't anymore because now I'm like, I've had enough things happen that I'm just like, come get it. But back in those days before it was the case, I was nervous about it. The other thing I was nervous about is I had never been through anesthesia before. I had never been put under by anything except my own volition to go to sleep. So the thought of somebody putting something on my face or in my veins that causes me to go to sleep was like, that's going to happen? How will I know if I wake up? I don't know if you've ever had surgery, but the very first time you go in, you're like, this is weird. And I didn't like it. So they put an IV in. My stress is kind of raising up through most of the day. They put an IV in. And eventually, maybe like 45 minutes before surgery, they give me a, a needle, and I can start to feel a burning starting from my hand and running up my arm up to my shoulder. And in that moment, I thought, yeah, that's enough of that. I'm done with that. And my mom, she's here. She can attest to this. I was like, we're going home. 
I'm not staying here anymore. I'll just rehab it. It'll be fine. The tape, by the way, I'm already pulling the tape off. And I cannot remember if I got the IV fully out or if it was in the process of going out when the nurse came in and said, hey, before you leave, let me try to give you something to make you more comfortable. And I was like, I don't know what that's going to be, right? Now, here's what she didn't do in that moment. She did not come over and be like, hush, little baby, don't say a word. That's not the comfort I needed in that moment, right? Like, listen, don't get me wrong. Sometimes having someone sing at you when you have a boo-boo is great. And she didn't bring me chicken soup and was like, eat up. This will make you feel better. No, she went and got a very long needle. And she put that into a medicine that I have to this day never felt the way I felt after it. She came in with this needle and I rolled up my sleeve and she goes, oh, honey, that's not where it goes. It's my first and only butt shot I ever got. Can I tell you something, though? It was amazing. And I felt very comfortable. So much so that when they were wheeling me into the operating room, the warm blanket was placed on me and I started to freestyle rap about how wonderful the warmth of the blanket was. As high as a kite. And let me tell you, she delivered on the promise to make me comfortable. See, delivering on the promise of comfort is something that I think we all need. But unlike a needle full of drugs, we need the comfort that God can provide it, and we need a shot to the heart. That's what we most need. See, we're in Isaiah 40 today, and in this chapter of Isaiah 40, the first 39 chapters are all judgment for Israel's consistent and constant move towards idolatry and wickedness, and there has been a long-term prophetic word that's like all of these things are about to happen to you and they're not good. But in the context of that, here comes God's voice that says, comfort, comfort my people. And I just wonder if we haven't all felt that way before, that we are in the wilderness of wilderness, that although we know we are God's people, we have this thought and this feeling about us that does he really know me? Because I feel like I'm alone in this thing. And I'm feeling like I don't have a way forward. And I don't feel like I have a comfort from the Lord. My goal today is to talk about comfort. And my, my big idea uh, for this is that God's comfort is never hollow promise nor mere sentiment. Rather, God always gives his people reason for comfort. See, sometimes when we think about comfort, we think about like, oh, that just makes me feel better in the moment. But the reality is things are still bad. And all it is is a distraction. And all it is is a mere moment. But I'm eventually going to feel those same things. But the comfort that God provides his people and the comfort that God promises always has a backed up promise. And it is a reality. When God says, comfort, comfort my people, he can deliver. My goal today is that you will leave this room truly in your heart being comforted. And the way I want to do that today is I want to show you five things from the text, five statements of comfort or five things that should bring us comfort. And then I'm going to make some closing applications because of it. And I just want to say this up front, that this is a prophetic 
passage. This is a passage that's most of the time preached at either Easter or Christmas. And it's no secret that all four gospels pick up verse three, make way uh, a path in the wilderness. This is a heralding that there's gonna be a coming Messiah. And so I don't wanna just, I'm not gonna be here and hold the punchline, okay? This passage, while it had something to do with the nation of Israel, it had everything to do with Jesus. And so I have no problem preaching to us, his church, because like the nation of Israel was waiting for a Messiah to come, we, his church, are waiting for the Messiah to come again. So we're in the same boat, and I believe that the same message applies. So here's the first one, and it's in verse 1. It says, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. You might read that and just be like, okay, cool, comfort my people. But I want you to think for a second, what was just prophesied to this nation? That they were going to be removed from the land that was supposed to be their inheritance. And by the way, we will come to find out that not only was this prophesied by the mouth of Isaiah, it actually happened that the people of Israel were exiled from the land, and not only were they exiled from the land, their temple was destroyed. The temple, when it was built by the hands of Solomon, the Spirit of the Lord descended upon it and filled the temple. This is a sacred place. This is a place where God's presence resides with us. This is where God is at. And now Isaiah has just pointed to a time when that's no longer going to be the case. This temple is going to go down, which means what's our inheritance? Who are we? Who do we belong to? Where do we exist in the world? We're in captivity, but this is where we were supposed to be. What does this mean? And you could imagine how these people might feel. Matter of fact, it says for us, we don't have to imagine. If you look just a little bit further, and this is into verse 27 of the same chapter of Isaiah, it says, Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Ever felt that way? God is responding in in this moment to these people who feel like God doesn't see me anymore. I don't know where I stand with God anymore. The rights that I thought I have, I don't know if I have them. And into that context, God says, you're still my people and I'm still your God. And that should be, for us, I believe, an incredible statement of comfort because this is something that is prophesied. It has not happened yet. So they can be confident that whatever the exile is, it is not the final word about their identity. It is merely God's process to uproot this love of idols in their heart and to cause them to love him. That's the goal. The discipline was not meant to smite them so that they might not be on the earth anymore. It was so that they might come to recognize that I am truly your God and that's just metal. And it was to be a discipline that the nation of Israel would come back to their God. And so all along, God's purposes were not so I could get rid of these people. His purposes were, you are my people and I am your God. Your inheritance is fixed because I chose you. That's the number one message of comfort that not only the nation of Israel could take, but that you can take today. God chose you. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that we were saved by grace through faith, and this was not of your own doing. 
If God chose you, if he made you to receive grace, do you know what that means? He says to you, you're one of my people and I'm your God. And whatever circumstance that you're going through and whatever identity problems that you feel on this moment, that will never change. I am your God and I'm working for you on that title. That's where I'm operating for from you. And to me, I think that that's a great way to start a chapter of comfort. We are God's people. The second one is that God pursues us. And if you look at verse 2, oh, sorry, this is still verse 1. Nope, it's verse 2. It says, speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. You might be saying, well, how is that a comfort? It's just speaking tender. But the word tenderly here is heart. So it should read something a little bit more like this. Speak, Isaiah, to the heart of my people. And isn't this the kind of comfort that you and I most need? Is this not the comfort? We don't need superficial forgetting our problems for a day. We need comfort that goes straight into the inner core of who we are. And in the biblical worldview, the heart was meant to be the center of our whole being, the center of our character and who we are. So what God is saying is, I want to speak to you, my people, and I want to bring you comfort, and I'm going to bring you comfort to the place that you most need it. I'm going to speak to the innermost parts of you. I'm going to go into the very heart, and the comfort that I'm going to bring you is going to rest in there. Isn't that an incredible statement? That God knows what we need so much in the moment that he will give us a message of comfort that won't merely get us through the next day, but will sustain us so that we will have the energy and strength to go day by day by day by day. Come what may, we have a comfort that is not based on the world around us. It is not based on the creature comforts of this world, but is based on a promise of God. How amazing is that, that this is the comfort that God offers. I want you to think just for a second, there are hundreds and hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people on this planet who have every possible creature comfort imaginable to them. They, have, they can go out and they can buy anything that will make them feel more comfortable, and yet in their heart they are sad, disappointed, disillusioned, depressed, angry, frustrated, and the list goes on. And why? Because they're seeking comfort with their whole life instead of in their heart. And what God promises is, yeah, your life might not always be comfortable, but let me tell you what can be, your heart, because I own it. Man, that should make you comforted today, not only that God knows you as one of his people, but that God gives you a comfort straight to the heart. And God knows what you need in your heart because by the way he created it, which means that any time that you have a desire or a passion that rises up from within you, know that that's just your heart whispering. What you really want is God. None of this other stuff is really going to satisfy you. Everything that you think is going to bring you comfort in the end won't if it's not Jesus. If it's not God at the center, it won't really bring you comfort. And so in moments of maybe frustration or moments of temptation where we feel like the flesh wants something deeply, I want you to say to yourself, what I really want is God, and I'm not going to submit to this temporary pleasure because I got a greater one. The third statement of comfort is that God guides us. 
God guides us. And we see this here again in verse 2 where it says that her warfare is ended. Her warfare is ended. Now I want you to think about the context of Isaiah 40 again. This is prophetic writing that has not happened yet. So Isaiah is writing and prophesying about an exile that hasn't happened yet, but God already has the end in sight. Okay, I want you to think about that just for a second. The end is already in sight, and God can declare confidently that there will be a time when your warfare is over because God is the one who can deliver, because God is the one that can guide, because God will be the one that leads his people. You know, what's interesting that uh, at this time frame when Isaiah was written, the Babylonians were not the predominant world power. The world power of the Assyrians. And the nation of Israel was worried about the Assyrians. There was so much, uh, so much worry and so much like, what's going to happen? Are, is, is God going to deliver us from the hands of the Assyrians? They were spending time and energy thinking about a present threat when God was already determining the outcome of the next one. How many people need to be comforted by that today, that what you are most worried about, what you are struggling in, that thing that you can't seem to get through, God already sees the end of it, and the next one, and the next one, and those after that, and the subsequent one, all the way until he brings you to himself. Does that not comfort your soul? Does that not bring you this level of thankfulness and trust that God guides your warfare is over. Right now in this moment, it might not feel like it. In five years from now, it might not feel like it. And to, to 20 years from now on your deathbed, it might not feel like it. But there will come a time when the promise comes to fruition. I brought you through it because I bought you and you were mine and I never fail. God guides us. He can see the end when we can't. Which means now, how does it comfort us now? What are you struggling with? It won't defeat you. It just won't. It reminds me of Romans 8, 28 and 29. For all things work. You know those, that's a, one of those very passages. And it's a huge passage. I don't want to get into it too much. But we are thoroughly cared for by God. Have you ever thought about God wants you to know the end before you ever start? Who else does that? God wants you to be so thoroughly cared for that he gives you the end before you ever start. And that should give us a great amount of confidence and a great amount of comfort. The fourth reason, and this is still in verse 2, it says that her iniquity is pardoned. Now, this is the real issue, isn't it? This is, the real issue, this is the real issue for the nation of Israel. So they had been disobedient to God's covenant. They made a covenant with God that said, everything that you tell us to do, we'll do. You're going to be our God forever. Don't worry, we'll be able to do it. And they immediately don't do it. And instead of turning to God in humility, and instead of listening to prophet after prophet and seeing God's strong hand deliver them time and time again, instead of relenting and giving in to the praise of Yahweh alone, they turn to the consistent movement of idols. Over and over again, the nation of Israel does this. Over and over again, instead of giving God what he is due, namely the praise and the affection of their heart, they give it to man-made objects this reminds me of Romans, people that want to 
serve and love the created things rather than the creator. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. If the wages of sin is death and the nation of Israel has committed great sin, what do they most need? They need that problem dealt with. And what does God say here in this word? It says that she has received, oh sorry, her iniquity has been pardoned. Can you imagine? Again, this is prophetic word. To know before they're even tasting one bit of the discipline that God brings for the sin, that it is going to be pardoned by God. Pardoned by God. And now you say, well, how does that happen? Well, it happens because Jesus stepped into the world. This very passage tells us that Jesus comes into the world. And when John the Baptist sees Jesus in John chapter 1, verse 29, what does he say? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Sin was a problem for the nation of Israel, and sin is a problem for us right now. But God, through Jesus Christ, has conquered sin, has paid the price adequately, has been a propitiation for, for sin. He absorbed the wrath for it. And not only did he absorb the wrath of it, he rose again from death and showed that sin no longer has mastery over his people. And so I just wonder, what would it feel like to know that you were about to go through a season in which God might discipline you because of disobedience, and yet ultimately your forgiveness is promised because the blood of Jesus is sufficient to cover it? Just wonder for a second, have you ever just rested and been comforted by the fact that your sin past, your sin present, and your sin future is already covered by the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. And I just wonder, is there anybody in this room that is giving sin way too much power and way too much authority, and they're listening to the words of sin over and over, and they're letting the condemnation that comes with that reign in their hearts instead of the comfort from God that says, I own it because I paid for it. I dealt with it decisively on the cross, and it's done. I made a spectacle out of it. It was nailed there, and it doesn't apply to my people anymore because I don't want it to. That should bring you comfort. What are you, what are you dealing with yesterday? What did you deal with today? What are you going to deal with five minutes from now when someone cuts you off in traffic? It's already dealt with through Jesus. Do you trust that, and does it bring you comfort? Or are you someone that says, yeah, he forgave me once, but will he do it again tomorrow? Can I tell you, I've met Christian after Christian after Christian who've come into my office and been like, I'm discouraged and I'm depressed and I don't feel good. I don't seem to be changing. I, came to, I, I keep on struggling with the same things and I just don't have any power. Just don't feel like I can make it happen. And maybe you feel this way. You know what I've almost universally always seen the problem to be? That people are struggling more and thinking more about their sin than the God who paid for it. Because listen, thinking about the one sin that you always struggle with and attempting to change through just a mere modification of your behavior will never change you. The only thing that will change you is when you see something more supremely valuable than that which what you struggle with. 
Until we see Jesus as supremely valuable, until we see him lifted up, until we see him as the owner of everything, including our lives, we will always struggle with the debilitating effects of sin. And I'm not saying that all of a sudden, if I look to Jesus, I'm like, I don't feel anything. I'm just joyful. I don't mean that. But those major swings will be less prevalent. But there's a very interesting thing here, and I want to look at this. Not only does it say that her iniquity is pardoned, it says that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sin. What does double mean? Well, it can't mean that she received double punishment. And where have we ever learned in the Bible that God punishes sin twice? And if I'm already arguing that it is covered by the blood of Jesus, which, by the way, I should say that... um, God overlooked sins in certain periods of time, but ultimately, it's the blood of Jesus that covers all things. What is this double nature? What, do, what does it mean? Well, I think Isaiah 61, 7 helps us to understand this, and I want you to hear this. It says, instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion, semicolon, a double portion of what? It says, instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. See, the deliverance that God provides is not only forgiveness, but it is that we are delivered from something to something. See, and I just want to just speak into just something real quick here and make sure that we understand this clearly. God saved you not only from a uh, removal of sin, but to become part of his family. You were not only your sins removed from you, you were adopted into his very family. You are a part of his covenant people now, which means that he loves you and guides you and directs you. And I believe that some of us, and this is, I think, true universally, have embraced a salvation of removal of punishment without embracing the life of joy and satisfaction that God gives us by giving, him, him, giving us his very self. And I just wonder if somebody in here doesn't need to be comforted by the fact that it's not like God forgives you and then says, but I more or less don't like you now. I forgave you, but like, mm, don't deal with me until I see you in eternity. Then we can be cool because I, no, he delights in his people. There are 38 references in the Old Testament that the nation of Israel is his inheritance. You ever thought about that? In the New Testament, the predominant teaching is that the inherit, we get an inheritance. But the Old Testament, the predominant teaching is that we are God's inheritance. And the best way I can describe it is our inheritance is that we get to be God's inheritance. You sort that out. You figure that out. We are delivered from something to something. Where there should have been shame and where there should have been dishonor, there is rejoicing for the nation of Israel. And God alone did it. And does that describe the attitude of your heart? Is that where you're at? Are you someone who, instead of the shame and the dishonor, you embrace that God has called you to joyfully follow him? But there's a fifth one, and this is the final one. God is coming for us. So, so far, God chose us. God pursues us, God guides us, God delivers us, and God comes to get us. 
See, all these other promises of comfort rest on the fact that he comes for his people. If God in the end does not come for his people, guess what? There isn't any comfort to be had. The promise of God would instead be hollow and unable to be fulfilled. But I told you earlier, God never makes hollow promise and he never provides comfort for just a moment. The real most true comfort that you and I need is to actually be with God. And God knows that. So in verse three, it says, prepare the way because guess who's coming? I'm coming to get my people. I'm gonna be with them. If like I argued, we are God's inheritance, he's not just gonna leave his inheritance out there to perish. He's gonna come to be a part of his inheritance. And what does he say? Make way in the wilderness. I'm coming and listen to this. And I think this is amazing, by the way. And you need to see this. It says, every valley, this is in verse four, every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places plain. You know what that means? It means what obstacle is there for the great king who comes? There's a king coming for his people, and guess what? Is there a valley too low? He just feels it. Is there a mountain or hill in the way? It gets moved out of the way. Is there uneven, rocky terrain? He makes it level. You understand the, 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 the implication here? This isn't responding to geography. Geography isn't the problem. Our own hearts are the problem. So what mountain of the heart holds, back, holds God back from you? Nothing. What valley holds him back? Nothing. What uneven ground holds him back? Nothing. Because he's God and he's a sovereign king and he can come when he wants to and he can do whatever he wants. And the fact is he chose you. And the fact is he knows you. And the fact is he provided a way of salvation for you so that you will be with him. And this is what he wants. This is his desire to be with his people. So how does the Lord come? He comes in some very interesting ways. There are three ways that the text says, they're not too much longer, guys. We're almost there. The first way that he comes is that he comes in might. He comes in might. You can see that later on in verse 10. He comes in might. Behold, the Lord comes with his might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. You know, sometimes we have to understand a big God to rely on the big promises of God. And if you go on to read the rest of Isaiah chapter 40, you're going to see some incredible verses. Let me just give you just a little bit of a snippet of this. This comes from Isaiah 40, uh, verses 12 through 16. It says, who has measured the waters in the hollows of his hand? I want you to get that picture in your mind. God, all the waters of the earth... You ever like scoop up water to splash your face? You're like, oh, I can get a lot in my hand. God's like, I get them all. Every single water fits right here to God. He says, the heavens, I just have to go like this with my hand, and they're totally marked off. That's how big our God is. What stands in the way of this mighty God? He's got an arm that can do anything. My favorite one is this. It says, listen, if all of Lebanon would not be sufficient for a sacrifice. Do you know what that means? Lebanon was known for these amazing, wonderful trees. The cedars of Lebanon, these were like famous things. You know what God is saying? It's not even enough kindling to even start a fire worthy of a sacrifice to me. That's how big I am. And this big God makes a big, big promise, and I can back it up. 
There isn't anything that's going to stand in my way. I'm the God of might. But here's the incredible part. The God of might in verse 11, how does he come and behave towards his people? As a shepherd. All of the force of God's power and his might is expressed to us when he says, I'm going to gather you up like little lambs. Little lambs that even can't even walk yet. And you know what I'm going to do? I'm not just going to put you on a leash and be like, come this way. I'm going to pick you up and I'm going to hug you. I'm going to pull you to my chest and I'm going to take you with me. You ever thought about that's where you're headed? All the might and power of God exercised in a shepherding way. For who? For you, but to the glory of God. But that is the destination. That is the final point. God will be with his people. He has the might to do it. And he is a shepherd who has a regard for the sheep. And that should automatically remind us of Jesus. Who in John 10, 11 says, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. What to us seemed to be the biggest weakness ever was in fact the mightiest work of a truly strong God. And guess what? He didn't stay dead. And he exercises strength from what looked like weakness for all eternity. Because when we see the lamb, we will see him as Revelation says, as one that was slain. What we thought was the greatest weakness will show to be the absolute strength in the mighty arm of God. We have a great shepherd king. And we can finish it this way. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says this, For all the promises of God, yes, even the promise of comfort that God makes, find their yes in him. All the promises of God find their yes in him. That him is Jesus Christ. That it is why it is through him we utter our amen to God for his glory. So can we just practice that real quick? Can we trust in the promises of God and say together, amen? Are you ready? I'm going to do it on the count of three. Give me your hearty amen as a glory to God. Can you do that? And I want you to think about everything we just talked about, all the comfort. I want that comfort to just bear up in you, and I want to hear the amen, okay? This is practice. we got to do it. Are you ready? We count of three. One, two, three.